Join us at The Hedge for a conversation about engineering, technology, and business. In this episode, Russ White, Tom Ammon, and Michael Natkin dig into strong opinions loosely held. Hello, Tom. Good to see you're back on The Hedge with us. Yep. Hello. And today our guest is Michael Natkin. Did I say that correctly? You said it absolutely right. Oh my goodness. I'm getting better. It's going to be a long road for me to pronounce names correctly though. Michael, let's back up and just talk a little bit about your background and then get into, there was this really fascinating article you wrote about strong opinions held loosely and how that's such a bad idea. And you're a little bit of an unusual guest for a networking podcast, but that's okay. We're used to that. This is the hedge. We get to <laughs> do whatever. Yeah. Awesome. So, so go ahead. Tell us a little bit about your background because it seems pretty fascinating. Oh, sure. Well, first of all, uh, thank, thanks again, Russ, for having me on. So this is great. And uh, Tom, nice to meet you as well. I'm excited to be here on The Hedge. And uh, yeah, my first networking podcast, so that's pretty cool. Uh, <laughs> let's see, as far as background goes, I mean, I'm an old guy. I've been at this since I was 16 and I'm 53 now. So, uh, you know, I don't want to take uh, too much time, but let's see, what have I done? Uh, as, uh, my early career, I was working in computer graphics. So I worked on, uh, way back in the day, I worked on Terminator 2 and Jurassic Park. So that, that's... Uh, was an exciting early time. Famous fun. people. <laughs> it, was a fun, it was certainly a fun first career. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was surprisingly awesome. Uh, but uh, that was only a few years. And then I went on to Silicon Graphics for a while, worked on some early 3D for the web. And then uh, after that, I was at Adobe for 13 years doing Adobe After Effects. And then uh, back in 2012, I actually took a break from software. I wrote a cookbook. I'd started this food blog that did pretty well. And wrote a cookbook, it got nominated for James Beard Award, and I was all set to go open a restaurant, and I met these crazy guys that were doing a food technology startup uh, called Chef Steps. So uh, Chris Young and Grant Crilly, uh, they were starting a company. They were, we ended up building a sous vide cooking tool and a website and a community, a bunch of really interesting food technology. So that was fun. Uh, so I was CTO there for five years, and then uh, most recently I'm VP of Software Engineering at Glowforge, which is a 3D laser printer company. So, wow, that's... Pretty amazing, honestly. It's been a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah. So, so this blog post you wrote, and, and Tom was really excited when he read this, uh, the strong opinions loosely held is, is one of the worst ideas uh, in tech. And, and it, I really liked it. I thought it was really good. So it was really interesting to read this. So tell us a little bit about where you started from and why you wrote this. Yeah. Uh, well, so for me, like, let me say that I didn't think this was the worst idea in tech for probably 25 of my first 30 years of being in tech. I thought it was the best idea. Uh, <laughs> so I'm definitely a recent convert. Uh, so, you know, there's this concept we've had. A, it, it's really part of the very, like, early mythology of programmers and tech, tech people is the best idea just always wins, right? So what you do is you all get together at the whiteboard and everybody just states their their point of view in the most bombastic, most forceful way possible. Uh, and you argue it out and you figure it out and then the best idea wins and everybody will come along and uh, you should, part of that stating that idea so strongly is the opposite is that you, it's supposed to also be weakly held. So if you put an idea forth really forcefully, somebody else brings a different point of view, you should be instantly ready to change your mind, right? Because the, the, it's, it's a, Battle of ideas, not a battle of personalities. 
So that it, it sounds great, right? It sounds like I mean, at least to some people, it sounds great. I, I used to have a lot of fun with this, and I've worked on teams where this worked spectacular. They tend to be really homogeneous teams with you know a small number of people, very similar backgrounds, similar mindsets, similar technical experiences, and uh, not much power differential. You know, we were all kind of working from the same level or, or same there, there was not a much of a strong boss or leader or vp or any of those things in the picture to worry about and it was so much fun oh my god we used to have the best time just uh we'd argue it out we were all still good friends we'd make the best choices and build things and it was great so that that's really where i started from with all this so so it's interesting because i think what you describe is a lot of what we run into with agile as well right mm. that if you know what my mind goes to here is agile that we tend to think that agile is the best way to do software development and it's much of the same kind of concept and it works really well if you have a team that is pretty homogenous and everybody's pretty much at the same technical level but it's very difficult to do this kind of thing when you are working with a very mixed team of lots of different uh, skill sets and lots of different levels and, and lots of different ideas. I think I know what you mean. Uh, I, I think one way that shows up with Agile in particular is if you're doing the style of Agile where it's kind of assumed you have this long list of tickets and anybody on the team can do any ticket. Right. Uh, in, in that sense, I think there is a similarity. And, and I found that, that you're right, that only really works well in a team of a bunch of people with very fungible skills. In most commonly real teams, it's much more likely that you know, person A should do this set of tickets that are related to computer vision, and person B should do the set of tickets that are related to the front end, and not that the two should necessarily swap, and they probably could. They're smart people. They can learn. But if you're trying to get it done as quick as possible, that might not be the right approach. So right. what, kind of, what kind of problems come from introducing this in a non-homogenous, a, a diverse environment? Um, backgrounds and skill sets, what, what are the bad things that it can, it can create? Yeah, so what tends to happen is you get one person or a small number of people who just end up dominating every conversation because they're very comfortable with that mindset. That's the world they grew up in. Uh, they're used to just being like able to put things forward in a way that's really intense, really strong. They know in their mind, or at least they think in their mind, they're, they're ready to change their mind if better data comes along. And they're also, they see that being very bombastic and sarcastic and loud is almost kind of funny. It's not meant to be serious. But when you bring that to a group of people with really a different set of experiences, uh, whether it's because they're from diverse backgrounds and maybe backgrounds where they haven't felt as powerful or secure in what they're doing, or just really just different experiences, even if it's not that, uh, they often don't feel like they can contribute. You know, they think, oh boy, this person's putting this forward this strongly, first of all, they probably know what they're talking about, so I should probably shut up. And second of all, uh, they just may not even be willing to go to battle even if they think they know a better idea, right? Like who wants to argue with that guy? So you just end up not getting the best ideas and you end up with a bunch of discouraged teammates. Um, Tom, any experience in your, in your world of having this type of thing? Yeah, I mean, I, I've, I've experienced this every single place I've worked. Um, it, it's it's almost a requirement on um, senior network engineering teams that you've got to, it's almost like you have to have somebody who has takes that approach to everything. I, I can't imagine a world in which there's a team without that now, except for my current situation, like every team I've been on has had this issue. And, um, you know, I've seen, I've seen those effects you talked about, Michael, um, 
in all the places I've worked. And it's just, it's really, I was, I was telling Russ when I read the blog post, I was, I was almost standing up and shouting because this is, this is what I have experienced. I just didn't, I just didn't articulate it um, nearly as well as you did. And I, the thing that I would like to see is, you know, how would, how can the industry turn this around? Like what, what can we do to show people that assuming that you're the most, you know, assume, just coming out and being strong and all those things we just talked about, how can we show that that's actually not the best way to, to communicate? Yeah, boy, I think there's a lot of pieces there. I mean, uh, uh, let me come to that, back to that in a second. I just, I'd love to hear a little bit more of your own stories around that. Like, can you talk about a time when you felt like your input wasn't really welcome? Yeah. I mean, everywhere that I was, uh, when I was earlier in my career, when I was junior, um, it was, it, it's, it's, it was pretty much emotionally unsafe uh, to go and say, you know, I don't agree with, with this thing you're doing because you know that the person is going to not respond very well to that because they, now they're in a position where they have to defend what they just said. Like you pointed out in your article, they, once they make this statement that I'm hundred percent correct, um, now they're, they are bound, they have to defend it and defend it to the death as it were. And so w- when you're a junior person and the person, you know, that's how it's going to be at, I'm not even going to, why would I even try? I'm just going to be embarrassed by this. But the, and the problem with that is when the junior person keeps quiet, um, the insights that they bring from examining something from first principles and from fundamentals, now you've discarded that. And, and reasoning from first principles is what makes us successful. So you've taken the first principle thinking that the, the, the beginner, the junior person brings that because they don't know anything else. Um, and now you've taken that examination of the fundamentals away and you've made yourself a lot weaker, I think. I think that's really true. And I, I think that that's something that all of us that are more senior in this industry should take really seriously is, you know, first of all, like, yes, we've all learned things from hard experience. And a lot of times that is a great shortcut to the right answer to a problem. Uh, but at the same time, the, we, it's really important to keep uh, a range of skill levels and experience levels on the teams because you're right, people coming in new bring a fresh perspective. They bring that kind of first principle thinking. Uh, and if you don't stay open to it pretty soon, you realize that you're the basis on which you're making your decisions is actually out of date. I mean, this industry changes fast. And if you don't keep up, you, you can't think you're going to keep up yourself. You have to bring in fresh perspectives. Right, and I think the key there is to remember or to realize that just because you've learned something through the school of hard knocks does not mean it's the right thing. That's right. It means it's, it's, it's what worked the time that you tried it. And so, therefore, it becomes solidified in your mind that this is, this is right because yeah. it worked. And, and working is the evidence of things that are correct, right, in our world. Um, and, and I think this is true in, most, in much of life. Um, but in, in technology in particular, we run into this all the time, right? Well, I can remember times when I was working on radar systems and somebody would say, well, the last four times this happened, we did this and it worked. Yeah, but... That doesn't mean it's right. That just means that's what worked. And then there's some junior guy in the corner who just sat and studied that particular circuit for two hours or two days because he didn't understand it. And he's completely left out of the conversation, but he's actually the person who knows what's going on. Right, right. And, and nobody's listening to them because they don't have the hard knock. They don't have the experience of hard knocks. Um, yeah. So... And I think this goes back to book learning versus experience learning. Both are valuable. We tend to overplay experience learning and right. lab learning over book learning. For sure. 
You know, another way this plays in, uh, uh, one of my engineers talks about this a lot of sort of the uh, uh, hero mindset. You know, you get these engineers who have done something heroic in the past. Uh, that's the memory that they live on and that, that's what holds up their ego. Uh, and it, oftentimes they haven't necessarily done the right thing. I remember there's an engineer at Adobe who's, uh, you know, I will uh, name names obviously, but who's legendary and not on a team I ever worked on, but legendary for having built enormous value for the company, but having written code that is absolutely unmaintainable by anybody but himself. And so even though he's a jerk to everybody there, he's basically unfireable or he's treated as unfireable, uh, which is a terrible decision. Uh, but that is the, the result is you have, you know, decades now, I think of, of people being unhappy working around this person. Right. Yeah. And, and that I've seen as well, even in the networking world, there are particular people, I won't name names, but who have gone their entire career coming up with a billion ideas and everything they implement tends up being totally horrendous and somebody has to walk in behind them mm-hmm. and fix what they've done. And often this gets into a huge ego issue, right? Mm-hmm. Like you can't, you can't fix it because that would be a bad thing to get right. into an argument with them. Yeah. So if that if those folks could learn to dial down that toxic certainty a little bit, be a little bit more open to influence, they actually wouldn't they think they would lose respect, but they would actually gain respect, right? Right. right. We would all be much happier to work for them. We'd all look up to them and not just be scared of them if they if they were sharing their ideas but from a place of humility and willingness to hear others. Right, exactly. So it's interesting that you wrote this. I mean, that you put this out on the web. I mean, what have, what, have you gotten a lot of reactions out of this that were completely off the wall or people say you're crazy? Or There's definitely been some of that. You know, I think most of the reactions have been really positive, but there was, uh, you know, and I've learned long ago not to respond to haters on the web. That's not a <laughs> you know, just try, try writing a food blog for a few years if you want to get on it. <laughs> Everybody has an opinion. <laughs> but, you know, there, were, there were a certain number of people that responded saying, you know, I just didn't understand what strong opinions loosely held really meant or that, uh, you know, how, how come I, everybody should stop being such a weak sister and be willing to fight for their ideas or what, you know, people who are defensive of that position. Right. That's interesting. Yeah. So there was a statement here you were talking about, um, about just counting, adding a degree of uncertainty to your statements. So where, where do you, how does this come out or have you seen this work in real life? Yeah. Let me back up one step from that, uh, to, I want to emphasize, I think we talked about it, but I want to really emphasize when you state a strong opinion in this way, it's not just that you shut down other people's thinking, you really shut down your own thinking as well. Right. So you think it's loosely held. It's not loosely held. Right. You, as soon as you state it that bombastically and that strongly, you're not really listening to anybody else. You're not actually open to their ideas. Uh, you're just going to look for how to defensively respond and insist that you, what you said was the right thing. So the idea of stating your conviction as a percentage or, or even just, you know, low, medium, high, putting some kind of a qualifier on it, because literally nothing's 100%, right? We could be hit by an asteroid tomorrow, and there won't be a sunrise in which to do your uh, new architecture or your new uh, networking plan or whatever it is. So nothing's 100%. So if you get in the habit of stating things even with even a little uncertainty, and I, I picked this up from Dan Shapiro, who's our, our CEO at Glowforge. Uh, I think he got it from Tony Wright, who was our original CTO there. 
uh, the idea is you just say, no, I'm pretty certain this is true, or boy, I am, I am really high conviction that we should do X, or I have a very, you know, I have an inkling, I have some thought that we should do Y. As soon as you do that, you've left yourself that psychological real estate where you can change your mind, right? Even if you're 99% sure, you, there's, there's room to back up. When, once you're 100%, you're stuck in that mindset. And why would anybody else even bother contradicting you or arguing with you? You know, you've stated that there's nothing that will change your mind. So adding just that small degree of uncertainty changes the game for yourself and for everybody else that's listening. Yeah, good, cool. So, um, yeah, so I it's think it's interesting that, you know, you say – here that if you start at 90%, your ego will have an easier time reversal than you committed the absolute eternal certainty. That's what I think what you're saying there. Yeah. Um, right. And I think that's true, particularly in the technology world, that um, it's not just that it's an ego thing, that there's a perception on the outside that you have to be right 100% of the time. Right. Um, just because just because you have to in order to for people to respect you, like you said, or something like that. Like if you're not right 100% of the time, then you're probably not somebody who can be trusted. And I, um, and I, I do think that goes back to uh, the whole concept there of we want to be the, the caped hero that comes yeah. in and fixes everything. Yeah. I think that's, that's absolutely true. And I, I actually think this hurts us in front of business people as well and our relationship to the people who run the business. That is an excellent point. So yeah. I think that's something that we don't think about very much. But when we stand in front of a business person and say we're 100% certain and then we're proven to be wrong, that is the end of our credibility entirely with Absolutely. that person. Yep. And it would be so much easier just to say, no, you know what? Um, we're, we're, we're pretty certain about this, but we're not 100% certain. Yeah. And if you need more certainty, here's the things we can do to go develop that. You know, if you're, if you're needing to know whether we can have this feature ready for you by February, right now it looks to me like we can. But we could do a quick investigation. We could test out the key, the hardest parts of it real quick, get back to you in a week and let you know for, with a lot higher degree of certainty. So what kind of what kind of things could be done um, organizationally? So individuals can can take responsibility for changing their mindset, but um, you know that takes time with people. Mm-hmm. Um, but what could a someone who's building a team or something like that? What could a a leader do to help foster this idea? Yeah, well, so there's one thing I talk about in the article that's uh, just a ninja move that anybody can use, whether it's a manager or just anybody that's in a meeting that sees this kind of conversation happening. Just a really easy thing you can do is say, wow, it sounds like you're really, really sure about that. Are you 100% sure? Or you know, what would you estimate? Like, how sure are you? And that kind of gives that person a nice soft landing, an easy way to, say, to back up and say like, oh yeah, no, I'm not 100% sure. I'm like 80%. You know, so that, that's a move that any one of us can use anytime. And it's really, uh, it's not in that person's face. So it's not fighting defensiveness with more defensiveness. It's just asking a good question that, that keeps the conversation moving. So I'd recommend that. I'd really recommend managers especially pay attention both to themselves because if, if you're a manager, by definition, you're in a position of some kind of power, right? So your certainty is doubly important because if, if you're, the people reporting to you think you're certain, 
they're not going to make any effort to go for to to bring forward any other points of view. Uh, so what you model is the most important thing you possibly can do, right? Like if if you as a manager are consistently saying like, it seems like we should do this. I'm ninety percent sure we should do that. I'm really low conviction about this one. Does anybody have some better ideas? You know, if you model that, your team will will respond and model it as well. So I think that's the probably the best move you have. The other is, of course, asking that question. And then it's also hiring for it, right? Like these habits are hard to change. And if you can do a better job of bringing in people that don't bring that sort of bombastic mindset, you're, you're probably way ahead of the game. So how, how would you hire for this type of thing? I mean, if you were thinking about what you would interview, interview for, what is it do you think, I mean, what, what would you ask? How would you go about doing that? Yeah, you know, one question I use sometimes is uh, just tell me about the most recent time you, time you change your mind. Just a real simple, you know, uh, if you can't think of any time you've changed your mind, that's pretty scary. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and maybe conversely, tell me about a time when you change somebody else's mind. Tom, anything you want to ask? I mean, you're pretty excited about this article, so. Well, I just, I just think that um, that we need a strong dose of this in networking. I guess the, I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of fear as a, as a senior person that if you, um, you know, there's some insecurity that if you act like you're not certain, someone will question your credibility. Um, that's, that's something that I think a lot of engineers probably struggle with. Let's, let's take a, like a, like a case where say I'm an engineer who, who I'm on a team. I've got, you know, maybe five other peers who are at my same level and I'm, and we're kind of in this culture where there's a few people that have this strong personality. I'm trying to think there's going to be people listening to this podcast who are like, okay, I get it. I get the theory. I understand why I need to be less certain, but I still live in this environment where there's four other people that don't subscribe to this philosophy. How do you, how do you get somebody to start to believe in that? What do you, you know, how do you, how do you coach someone to, to take this step? Well, that's such a good question. Uh, one, uh, one thing I would suggest for some people who, particularly people are into uh, learning from books, Annie Duke, who's a professional poker player, wrote a fantastic book called Thinking in Bets that actually is very much along these same lines. Uh, the combination of having read that and seeing how Dan Shapiro applies the sort of conviction thinking is really what sparked this concept for me. So if you have somebody you want to reach, you think you could reach through a book, that's a great one. It's a short read and it's very entertaining. And uh, you know, she's got great poker stories in there as well. So that, that might be one approach. You know, the other is, and this ties in with something I just believe in in general, is we all need to get better at having braver conversations with people. There's a wonderful book about how we all have shame, essentially, right? And that shame keeps us from having the hard conversations. And just, it, it is always much easier than you think it'll be to go to somebody and say whatever it is you think that's difficult. So sometimes that might be, hey, you know, in that meeting we were just in, that actually hurt my feelings because it seemed like you were so sure about how we should, I don't know, deploy our deploy our new architecture on Azure versus Google Cloud that uh, I didn't really even feel like I could share my input. And I might be wrong, but I really would have liked to be able to put forward my idea on it. You know, that might seem like intolerably scary to a lot of engineers to do that. But if you can coach them, and as a manager, if you can coach them to how to have those conversations, I think for me, that is a, a, a skill that will benefit you, not just at work, but also at home too. What do you think are the, like, so what are the outcomes um, when this when this mindset shift happens and your senior people start being less sure and, and, and still confident, but, you know, what we've been talking about, what are, what are the positive outcomes? Yeah, and, and to be uh, clear, being less sure or doesn't mean that you can't make decisions, right? Like none of this, if anything, it should let you make better decisions faster. 
because you're dealing with the actual odds and not some hypothetically, you know, odds, odds stretched out to an extreme that are irrelevant. So we have to be comfortable in making decisions in the face of uncertainty. So we may say, you know, I'm 80% sure that we're going to get a better deal going platform A than platform B. And then you make the decision and you go with platform A. And if you were wrong, you think about whether you should change your mind. But in terms of the, I would say the biggest thing you see if your team starts thinking and acting this way is just happier people and happier people are more productive, right? You know, if you, if you go to work feeling like, oh God, another day where I'm going to get stomped on, my ideas are going to be ignored and I should just crack out this code and, uh, you know, maybe take off at 3.30 because uh, the refrigerator repairman's coming or whatever. You're not getting the most out of your people and they're not getting the most out of their career. They're not going to enjoy working there. They're not going to stick around very long. In a situation where they feel heard, they believe their leaders have an open mind because they do have an open mind and where they they can be full participants, you create a, an environment where they're going to be much happier and more productive and stay a lot longer. And also, I think a, another huge outcome is your team will be much more capable of onboarding and retaining diverse members. This is part of the article I got some pushback on, but I, I think it's completely true, right? Like if, if you want a team of all 20 to 30 something white men from the same background, strong opinions loosely held might work. If you want to be a team that has uh, very effective women and very effective candidates from diverse uh, ethnicities and from diverse uh, backgrounds in terms of, of uh, wealth and all the other ways that we can be diverse members of society, you have to be open to that mindset just absolutely won't work, right? If people come from positions of less implicit power. And if they are in an environment where that power is wielded so explicitly, they're not going to be happy. They won't be successful and they won't stay. The whole, the idea of the power differential, um, you know, we've talked about it a couple of times. Um, I, I, I don't know. No, what do you think? But I think that if that, that's something that can be addressed um, organizationally and, and by leadership, the, it's, you know, the, when the power differential is so great, if the, if the person who has the most, most experience is always going to be the person whose ideas win anyway, um, that's, that's another thing that can be solved, um, you know, by, um, with organizational or cultural sorts of changes. And do, yeah. do you think that that, I think that's true. What are, what are some of the things you've seen that have helped in that regard? Just, I think when, when the opinions of, it's not that someone who has no idea how to build a system can reprimand someone who has 20 years of experience. I'm not talking about that, but when, when the people who have the senior experience, um, have to are are required to persuade those who are going to be implementing these things um, that it's the right thing to do and that the, the person implementing has to sign off on it. Um, I think that is a great way to level the playing field and, and, you know, things like that. I think if you build it into your culture that you don't get to just roll over everybody that you have to get everybody's cooperation. Um, you know, things like that. I've, I've, I've seen when it's like that, I feel like the people who are more senior tend to take a little bit more adult responsibility for, you know, we actually have to make this all work. It's not just about you being smart and having a fancy diagram. Um, you know, that's, that's my experience. That makes sense. I mean, for, for sure, because I said so should never be the reason we do anything, right? So yeah, culturally putting in place some checkpoints where uh, somebody specifying a system needs to give the explanation, you know, whether that's write a spec or do a uh, whiteboard it or do a tech talk or whatever it is, but it really lays out the reasoning and is, is open to the alternatives. And, uh, and also, I think really making visible the trade-offs they already considered, 
you know, it's not just we're doing A, it's we're doing A and not B, C, or D, and here's why. Right. It's huge, right? So there is the opposite side of this, right? Which is that you can get in a position where no one will make a decision. How would you say you guard against that in this situation? Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, again, I mean, If I, you're going to say everybody should say 80%, then how do you get to a 100% decision? I mean, that, that would be a pushback I would see being made here. Mm-hmm. No, that's, that's right. I, I would say in practice, I haven't seen that be a problem at all. Glowforge is where I'm most familiar with using this method. And I would say we make decisions really fast and with often with very limited information, incomplete information and a, a commitment to change the decision when the data changes. So I think it does need to be paired with an organizational commitment to take that data and move quickly. So, you know, if your senior architects at 80%, your junior people are 40% certain a different way, at some point you still have to know whose decision it is to make. So it doesn't change ownership, right? Like this still may be the senior architect or the engineering manager or the VP or whoever's decision it is to make, but everybody's input to that decision should come with that kind of uh, certainty labeling. It makes it a way easier for that person to make a make a, a sound decision. Well, I think that pretty much covers it. It's a very good show. I think it's very, very, I'm super glad you wrote this because I think that a lot of people think this way. They're just not like Tom. They're not willing to say it, right? They're not willing to come out and just say, no, we should back off a little bit and be a little more softer in the way we do things. Um, by the way, you see this all the time in the ITF. People will say, no, this is the way it is, and that's the end of it. And uh, they'll get up at the mic, and I, you know, you'd be talking at the mic, and people will actually scream, be standing at the, at the mic, screaming at you from another mic, you know, and you're like, just calm down. <laughs> you know, just, <laughs> let's have a discussion. Let's not have an argument, right? Yeah. Um, well, maybe next time that happens, ask them, uh, you know, are you 100% sure or 50% sure of that? <laughs> yeah. 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 Very interesting. Well, thanks very much for coming on The Hedge, and uh, hopefully we'll have you back on in the future because this is a really, really interesting article and interesting conversation. So do you blog any place? I, I assume there's this one blog post, but do you blog other places regularly or? Uh, not regularly, kind of uh, when, when the uh, passion strikes. I'm I, uh, blogging right now at Glowforge, and I've got some, uh, you can also find under my name, Michael Natkin, you can find some uh, posts I've written on Medium that are some other thoughts on uh, startup life and uh, uh, how to hire great engineers and how to work with contract uh, engineering partners and uh, some various topics. Okay. Excellent. Very good. And uh, Tom, you are still not blogging. You're a lazy bum. That's okay. (laughs) (laughs) I have like four draft blog posts that are not finished. It's It's awful. That's no excuse. (laughs) (laughs) But otherwise, I'm on Twitter and LinkedIn. Uh, Twitter is uh, Tom Ammon. Cool. Thanks. And I'm Russ White. You can find me at rule11.tech on LinkedIn. I don't really tweet that much, but I do have a Twitter account. Just don't PM me there because I don't answer PMs on Twitter. (laughs) I have enough going on in my life to keep up with PMs in five different places. Well, thanks again, Michael, and we'll catch you next time. It was a pleasure. Nice talking to y'all. Thank you for joining us. You can find The Hedge at rule11.tech.